0: Good evening, good to see you tonight. Glad that we're able to be back here together tonight. We're going to continue in our passage from this morning in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, this will be on page 837. Pew Bible, the black Bible is in front of you, page 837. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, as I mentioned this morning, we're going to try to consider the question, who is this Lord we love on Sundays in the summertime? And, uh, we're looking through, not necessarily walking through Mark, but definitely going to hit some of the high points and some of the, uh, significant stories of Jesus' life in Mark. But before we get into tonight's lesson, let's just kind of set the stage uh, for who is Mark, uh, what is the, the gospel of Mark all about, what's different about it maybe than some of the other gospels. Of course, you know uh, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar uh, with some slight differences, probably written certainly at different times and to perhaps slightly different uh, audiences. It's believed Mark was probably perhaps the first one of the gospels written and probably written to a, a Greek uh, audience rather than a Jewish audience you know Matthew uh, you remember how Matthew starts how this person begat this person and this was the son of this person and this person it goes through the genealogy of Jesus right well that would be important to a Jewish audience uh, to understand where this guy Jesus came from who's his family uh, well Mark does it doesn't start with that at all. He doesn't even start to talk about the childhood of Jesus. He starts basically with John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and then rushes into Jesus' ministry. And that's where we started this morning, when he was in Capernaum and he was healing all kinds of people and people were coming to them and he was preaching and wanting to go other places uh, to preach further. So that's uh, Mark's uh, approach to it. And we remember Mark probably from the book of Acts, uh, he was known as John Mark primarily during that time. He's related to uh, to Barnabas. And remember, he uh, journeys with Paul and Barnabas for a short time on that first missionary journey. Uh, then he turns back, and they have a confrontation about whether he should go on the second missionary journey with them or not. Uh, but if we think about it this way, um, Mark is probably, the book of Mark, is probably recounting most of the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Uh, if you wonder, you know, where's... Where's the stories that, that Peter would have told? It's probably in Mark. He's probably talking to, uh, he would have been perhaps close to, in Acts chapter 12, uh, when, when Peter, uh, gets out of prison, he goes to a lady named Mary's house, and we find out, uh, that, that Mary is the mother of Mark. Uh, so there's some sort of fairly close relationship. Maybe maybe they're related or, or maybe they're just good friends. We don't know exactly. But Mark uh, certainly had a relationship with uh, Barnabas, uh, certainly had a relationship with Paul. In uh, and, and some of Paul's later writings, he asked for Mark to come to him and to be with him. Uh, but he also had a relationship with Peter. So we don't know a ton about Mark uh probably when we first think about john mark we think about the disappointment that he was on that first missionary journey uh but he knew a lot of people who knew a lot of things and had interacted with jesus while he was here on earth and he brings some some rich value to us uh tonight Like I said, we're kind of continuing the story Uh, in Mark chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14 here in just a second. Uh, But you'll remember again that Jesus has begun uh, teaching and preaching and healing people. And we ended this morning's lesson with Mark chapter 2 and verse 17 where it says, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, these scribes and Pharisees, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Starting in verse 14 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus begins to deal with uh, a group of people that we are used to him dealing with, but we're going to approach it from maybe a slightly different way. You know, we know that he uh, addresses the scribes and Pharisees multiple times, and often he's pretty harsh on them. He's not really going to be harsh in this in this section that we're going to talk about today, but we're going to see why he is harsh later to these people. The beginnings of him seeing and recognizing where these people's hearts are it happens in these, this passage right here. So when we think about, uh, I, I entitled tonight's lesson, uh, the religious elite and how Jesus deals with the, the religious elite. And certainly we would think about the scribes and the Pharisees in that way that they had, uh, you know, bound, uh, burdens upon the people that they were unwilling to carry themselves. Jesus says, listen to what they say, but don't live like they live. They were saying the right things. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. All of these things Jesus says repetitively in various ways and in various Various times, John the Baptist also talks about it with the scribes and Pharisees. So we would think about them as the religious elite. They think they're very religious, but Jesus says, God says, they're not where they need to be. They're not living it out the way they need to be living it, and they're not really, saying, they're not really being who they say that they are. But one thing I want us to point out here in this passage, we're also going to talk about uh, the followers or the disciples of John, of John the Baptist, okay, so here are some other people that maybe we wouldn't think about them as religious elite, but there's going to be a problem that Jesus has with them, a similar problem that he has even to the Pharisees. So here's the warning. We might be the... the. Followers of John the Baptist who hopefully many of them would eventually become followers of Jesus or we might be the followers of the Pharisees or we could be Pharisees ourselves or or maybe even some of those followers of John became like the Pharisees and didn't accept Jesus because he was different. He was challenging. Jesus challenges religious people. He did in the first century and he does in the 21st century. Jesus challenges religious people to follow him and to live like him not to just be religious there's nothing wrong with religion there are people today who think that organized religion is is a bad thing why do they think that because many times organized religion has become corrupt and ha- has become a bad thing right we know that that's in other groups of christians sometimes perhaps even in our own fellowship that kind of stuff does happen But he's not talking about uh, that that religion is a a bad thing, uh, but he's talking about warning that when we follow the religion rather than we following Jesus who gives us the rules and gives us the way we ought to live our lives, then we run into a problem. So that's just to set the stage a little bit for you. So the religious elite, how does Jesus deal with them? First of all, in verses 14 through 17, Jesus is going to have a problem, or more accurately, the religious elite are going to have a problem with Jesus because they're unwelcoming and they've missed the mark on what the purpose of jesus ministry was let's look at verses 14 through 17 as he that's jesus passed by he saw he saw levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he got up and followed him and it happened that he was while he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with jesus and his disciples for there were many of them and they were following him so let's just stop there for a second because that's a lot. And there's, there's going to be a problem here in just a minute that these religious folks have with what Jesus is doing. Uh, but he, he finds a man named Levi. We know Levi as Matthew. Uh, but he's a tax collector. And every time we talk about Matthew, we've got to realize and remember who, what, 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 what does that mean that he's a tax collector. Uh, Again, he would have been seen by the the Jews of his day as someone who was a turncoat, someone who was a traitor, uh, someone who was working for the enemy. You know, you had groups of, of, of Israelites who were still hoping to and even specifically thinking that this coming Messiah would be the one to lead them in revolution. Uh, they, they would throw off anyone and everyone who had overtaken them, and they would reestablish the, the might and the splendor of the kingdom of Israel during the times of David and Solomon. And they're looking to uh, this Messiah to be the one who's going to do this. And no, another one of Jesus' um, followers, his disciples, his apostles, is Simon the Zealot. He, the Zealots were a group who were actively trying to overthrow the Roman government in and around Israel. Uh, so they, you had these two different people, and, and Matthew is, is here, and he's, up, he, he's called by Jesus, and he gets up and he follows him. Nobody would have liked that. None of the Jews would have been happy about that. They might have been accepting about it. They wouldn't have been happy about it, and some of them would have just been downright angry about it. But he calls them, and then it says that, that Levi, or Matthew, throws a banquet for him. That's how it's described in some of the other Gospels, that he throws a banquet for him. And there's many sinners and tax collectors, and they're they're joined together. Uh, sinners and tax collectors, irreligious people, uh, people who, who just don't hold to any form of, of teaching or the importance of, of, of God at all. But notice what it says at the end of this, in, in verse 15. It says, for there were many of them, sinners and tax collectors, and they were following him. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? These irreligious people that no no doubt the scribes and the Pharisees had had tried to talk to, had tried to get them to to come and and to repent of their sins. No doubt that John the Baptist in his preaching, he's calling for sinners to repent. He's tried to reach these people. But these irreligious people, these sinners, these tax, tax collectors, they're sitting at, they're dining at the table with Jesus. And at least they're described in this verse as, being interested in following him. He has already made some headway in this. Now, verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw this, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? In other parallel passages, remember this same story is also told in Matthew uh, and also in Luke. I think it's in Luke's account. The question is not, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? He It's to the, uh, the, the disciples, and they say, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors and that will be a question that that we're going to have if we're going to be followers of Jesus we're going to spend time with people who are the outcast of the community we're going to spend time with people who are irreligious we're going to spend time with people and invest in people and love people who are sinners not accepting what they what they're doing that's wrong but loving them even though they do things that are wrong We're going to do that kind of thing. And you know what's going to happen? Religious people aren't going to be too excited about that. And they're going to ask you, like they did in the book of Luke, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why are you spending the time with these people? In verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. In Matthew's account of this same story, he adds this phrase. He says to these uh, scribes and Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. And again, that's going to be a big blow to these religious people. Because as I think we've talked about recently, there were tons of different sacrifices that the jews were supposed to offer uh, on specific days and specific ways after specific specific circumstances there were just all these rules and regulations about the importance of these sacrifices and then jesus says hey i'd rather you be compassionate than offer all those sacrifices i'd rather you look at these sinners and tax collectors and care about them rather than checking off all the boxes for your sacrifices really what he's saying similar to how he said in other places listen Those sacrifices, they're important, and I don't want you to not do them. But you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the more important thing. You're missing the fact that these people who are sinners, these people who are outcasts, these tax collectors, they need to come to Jesus. They need to come to me, is what he would say. Uh, In verses 18 through 22, uh, the religious elite of Jesus' day, the religious elite of today would have a problem with Jesus because their expectations would not be met. Jesus wasn't interested in meeting their expectations. Now, we know that Jesus uh, fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah. He was interested in that. He even does some specific things in order to make sure that he fulfills some prophecy to point to people to the fact that he is the Messiah. But he's not interested in meeting our expectations of what a Savior should be like. He's just being the Savior that we need. And notice what they say here in verse 18 and following. Here's John's disciples. So John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay again, fasting is uh, taking a time uh, to to not eat uh, probably a, a prolonged time we 're talking multiple multiple hours and not just when they're sleeping uh, we're talking multiple days oftentimes and many times for their religious practice of fasting they would be studying God's word they would be focusing on God that would be what they would be using the time focusing on God remember that uh, they were fasting and they came and said to him they said to Jesus why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast so they have these religious people they have an expectation this is what religious people do Why aren't your followers doing this? Jesus says to them in verse 19: while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And then we get verses 21 and 22, which you've probably heard before and maybe wondered, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He says this in verse 21 and 22, on this same topic of fasting, on this same topic of his disciples not fasting while he was here on earth, it says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the old uh, pulls away from the new, and the worse and a worse tear results. Verse twenty-two: No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the wine skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. What is Jesus talking about? Now, today for us, that's a little bit confusing. Uh, we we may not exactly understand, especially the wine skin thing, because we probably don't interact with that a whole lot. But the point is, in verses 21 and 22, it's not an analogy. It's not a, par- a parable. It's not a proverb. It's not something that Jesus is trying to say, hey, the, the kingdom of heaven is like this. When he's trying to say that, guess what he says? Hey, the kingdom of heaven is like this. When he's, when he's trying to get us to understand something about the kingdom of heaven, he says, hey, I'm going to tell you something about the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here in these verses is something that probably for some of us, but certainly for the first century church, the first century Jews, uh, it would have just been common sense. Hey, you, you don't put an unshrunk patch on shrunken clothes. Otherwise, if you do, it's going to make a worse hole. Hey, you, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because if you do, the wineskins are going to burst. That's just the way that it is. And he he would look at them and he could have said, you know that, right? You understand that. And they, they would have said, yeah, we understand that. In the same way, that the parallel that he's saying is, it doesn't make any sense to fast while I'm here. If the purpose of fasting is to focus on God... Well, I'm right here. There's no reason to fast. You just need to be with me. And that's what he's saying. Why, why do my disciples not fast? Because there's no reason for them to fast in order to focus on God because I'm right here. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And their expectations of fasting to focus on God, in doing so, they missed God right in front of them. Is it possible? That in our religious practices, that those things could sometimes get in the way of seeing Jesus, of following Jesus, of being who Jesus wants us to be. Now again, I have no problem with traditions. Here's my, my thoughts about traditions. Uh, I think every tradition started out a good way, and here's how I think it started. And I could be wrong, but this is how I think it started. Tradition started because somebody asked, probably a group of somebody's asked, hey, what's the best way that we can do this right here, right now? And they figured out what they thought the best way to do it was, and guess what they did? They did it that way. And they kept doing it that way. And they kept doing it that way. And eventually, that's just the way they did it. Because at some point in the past, distant past, not so distant past, somebody figured out this is the best way to do it. Now, the wise thing for us to do would be to ask that similar question regularly. What's the best way for us to do what God wants us to do here, now, and today? Not to change anything biblically, but to consider with what we have and the to- tools and talents that God has given to us, what's the best way for us to do this? So I'm not questioning tradition here. What I'm saying is sometimes uh, the things that we do could get in the way. It- it's true for them. They were fasting, and they would miss Jesus because they were disciples of who? Of John. They were disciples of the Pharisees. They were not disciples of Jesus. And they missed him because they were more concerned about their expectations than what God wanted them to be. Thirdly, this this evening, in verse 23 through 28, uh, the religious elite will have a problem with Jesus because they considered and held similarly to fasting the law greater than the Lord. They considered the law to be greater than the Lord. Let's look at verses 23 through 28. Uh, and it happened that while he was passing through grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples began, uh, began to make their way along the way, excuse me, along the while, picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why Why are they doing this that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read of what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful to, for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. So here, somewhat we would say a legitimate concern The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, now it's a, it's an overreaction is what it is. It's a, um, remember, um, we have the law. We have the things that God has commanded us. Uh, then the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders, they made a hedge around those laws. And again, I think they did that with good intentions. If this is wrong, then let's build a hedge around it to make sure people don't get anywhere close to doing what is wrong. Because if they don't cross the hedge, then they'll get ne- never get anywhere close to, to breaking the law. And I think that was with a good intentions. The problem was they began teaching as doctrine, or they began teaching as the law of God, the precepts of man. They said this, this hedge that we've built is equal to the law that God made. And that's just not the case. It may be a good idea. It may be a wise idea. It may be something that's, that's smart. But it's not the same. It's different. And, and, and what that would, they would hold people accountable to their standards rather than God's standards. And God would warn them about that. Jesus would warn them about that. That's what they're doing here with the, uh, the Sabbath day as well. The Sabbath day was the seventh day. Remember, it was a the day they were supposed to keep holy, uh, to recognize and to remember that, uh, God created the world and everything in it in six days. On the seventh day, He rested. They were, all, they had limitations on how far they could walk. They had limitations on what they could do, uh, weren't supposed to really do much of any kind of work. And what they're saying here, what they're accusing the disciples of is they're walking through a grain field and literally just picking up, you know, a few heads of grain, rubbing it in between their uh, hands to, to get the chaff off and, and eating the heads of grain grain to give them some sort of sustenance a very small amount they're equating that with taking in the harvest two totally different things right but they're equating that hey you you are breaking the sabbath you're breaking one of the commandments of god by picking up these heads of grain and eating of them and Jesus answers them in a number of ways. First of all, he brings up David, which none of the Jews are going to argue with what anything David did, pretty much, uh, because he is held high within their within their culture. Uh, then he, he marks out and, and shows that even in the law, even in what God said about the law, there was already a built-in exception. That's what he says, right? Uh, the consecrated bread, uh, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. So there was already some sort of exception uh, within the law. And then he makes the biggest point verse 27. Uh, my, the New American Standard Version reads it this way. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Here's the, uh, a little bit more literal translation, and listen to this. The Sabbath came into being for the sake of man. Man did not come into being for the sake of the Sabbath man can benefit from following and recognizing the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't get anything from the the existence of man because the Sabbath is just a day. It's just a day to recognize Jesus or God's uh, creative power. So the point is that the law, the Old Testament, and I would argue New Testament, the law was never meant to keep us from God. Did you hear me? The law was never meant to keep us from God, but in the Old Testament, in the first century, and today, sometimes we approach it and we treat it in such a way where the law can keep us from God. That's certainly what the the Pharisees were doing here. Let's look lastly at chapter three, verses uh, one through six. The religious elite would have a problem with Jesus because instead of, allowing the law to lead them to God. Again, they placed the law above God. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him, okay? So here we have uh, an ambush, okay? They're watching Jesus. They're sitting there in the synagogue, and they, I, I don't know, there's gonna be a man with a withered hand here who needs to be, he, he has some sort of physical ailment, a withered hand, exactly what that means, I'm not sure. Uh, my granddad Uh, he was a a world war ii vet. I never asked him but on his on his right hand the hand you shake with his uh, Ring finger was bent permanently in this direction That's not a withered hand, but that's what I think about when I think about a withered hand Maybe maybe his his fingers were were contorted in such a way where he just couldn't use his hand anymore There are diseases and accidents that could cause such a thing, but this man has this withered hand Why was he there? Did he come on his own volition? Was he there to just worship god? Is it possible the Pharisees brought him there simply to test Jesus? Now we know, listen to what it says. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might accuse him. Whether it was happenstance, whether it was the man's practice to be there, or whether the Pharisees brought him in, they were watching Jesus' interaction with this man not to just see if he would do a good thing, but so they could accuse him of doing a bad thing. And this is what Jesus does in verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So he uses this man as a, an, an object lesson. And he said to them, this man comes forward, everybody sees his hand, everybody knows what's going on, everybody knows it would be good for this man to be healed. And he says to them, those who are watching them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill it, but they kept silent. They were too afraid to even answer this question. And after looking around at them, who knows how long do you think that that pause was? As Jesus is just just begging them, "Hey, you talk about an easy Bible class answer, right? Listen to the question again: Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath day? Was it ever lawful to do harm? Not really." It's never never a good thing to do a bad thing. It's always a good thing to do a good thing. This is an easy, you know, Bible class answer, right? And he's looking around, there in the synagogue where they're worshiping God. And he's waiting for an answer for them, from them. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. These religious people would have had a problem with Jesus because they did not allow the law to lead them to the Lord. If you read in the Galatians, if you read in uh, the book of Romans, we see the beauty of why we have the Old Testament. Why do we have the Old Testament? Why are there so many of those commandments? Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. The point of the law is to show us you need God. You can't do it yourself. You're not perfect. You desperately need a Savior. And they knew the law better than we know the law. They knew the Old Testament far better than any of us know the Old Testament. But they missed it. They missed this Messiah, this promised one that they had so been longing for because he didn't meet their expectations, because uh, he he wasn't coming to, to do what they wanted him to do, and because they did not allow the law to lead them to the Lord. Look at verse 11 as we close. Jesus goes around further and he continues healing people and he's casting out demons. And here's the response of those unclean spirits. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Here's, here's a problem that we have to guard against. Here's a problem that we have to guard against. These people, these scribes, these Pharisees, even sometimes the disciples of John, who had already changed a good bit because of John's teaching, they missed Jesus for a while. Hopefully some of them eventually came to Jesus and began to follow him. Uh, they they were expecting something different, he didn't meet their expectations. Uh, he he thought they thought that he was going to do something that he didn't come to do. They thought that that he was going to come and praise them for their goodness, but he didn't come to praise us for our goodness. He came to call those who have very little goodness to save them. But then these demons, Satan's demons, when they see Jesus, they fall down on their knees and they say, you're the son of God. Which is the better response? Is it possible the demons had a better response to Jesus than the religious people? And if Jesus showed up today and challenged us the way that he challenged them, what would our response be? Would we be willing, would we be smart enough to fall down on our knees and say, you're the son of God. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We are thankful for today. We're thankful for the opportunity we've had to gather with our family here at Jefferson Avenue, your children. God, we're thankful for the blood of your son, Jesus, that has washed away our sins, his sacrifice that was uh, the propitiation, the the taking of our place upon the cross, the taking of our place in the the sentence of death because of our sins. We're thankful for all that he is. Lord, uh, many of us here today have been Christians for a long, long time. Uh, decades and and Lord it's sometimes easy just like those first century Jews to to get caught up in the motions to get caught up in just the way we do things to get caught up in making sure we're doing all the things that we think we're supposed to do that would make you happy And, and Lord sometimes we miss you we miss what you're really about we miss the most important messages of the gospel and that is that you came for everyone because you loved us enough to take our place. Lord help us not to be like those folks that missed you and missed your son while he walked the earth. Lord help us to be able to recognize and willing to fall down on our knees and say you are God and Jesus is your son and to live like him to the best of our abilities. Lord, we fall short of that all the time. And Lord, when we fail and when we fall, give us the courage and the strength to know that you have forgiven us as we stand up and try again and try to do better. Lord, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for your goodness. And I pray that tonight, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, or if there's a Christian who's struggling and needs to to get sin out of their life, I pray tonight they will do that in whatever way they need to, God. Lord, forgive us for our sins and thank you for Jesus who gives us the hope of heaven and a better life even today. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you are a Christian and you've got struggles, welcome to the club. We all have struggles. Uh, If you need help and you need to let us know about some of those things so that we can pray with you and come alongside you and help you on this journey towards heaven, uh, we're going to stand and sing a song here in just a second and you have a chance to do that. Whether you come forward and let us know about that, if you've got a problem tonight, brothers and sisters, if you've got a problem tonight, Take care of it, and you know how to take care of it. Confess your sins to Jesus, confess your sins to God, and trust that he has forgiven you of those things, but then get the help that you need from your brothers and sisters in Christ to do better. And if you're not a Christian tonight, uh, there's a God who loved you enough to come to this earth to die for you, and a God who's powerful enough that he raised himself from the dead to give you the hope of eternal life and the victory over death. If you wanna know more about him, we wanna talk to you about that. And if we can do anything for you tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.